Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper on Monday, August 22nd, right? No, I think it's the 21st, isn't it? 22nd. Is it really? Yeah. Okay. 2022. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. I knew that. I knew that. Um, yeah, so here we are. Yeah, we're, we're... We're back in the home front. We're recording on Monday because Sunday we were deep in recovery. That's right. We're deep in recovery. Well, it was the final day of what might be loosely described as the invasion of the grandchildren uh, and their parents besides. An invasion, of course, is just a humorous term. We love having the grandkids. We love having the family around. But uh, there are, uh, there's a certain level of chaos involved in that. Wouldn't you say? Is that fairly described? Well, it wasn't always chaos, but uh, you know, always something. we were busy. We were it was busy. always something. We were always busy. They motor. They motor. They move back and forth. They're <laughs> right. both under two and uh, under two years old. And uh, they got things going on. They got things to do. We had a lot of good adventures. Yes, we did have good adventures. We did a lot of good swimming. Yes. yes with both Pepper and Hazi. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it is uh, nice. Pepper was on the East Coast with us mm-hmm. for a month. Mm-hmm. So there were developmental strides. Um, well, on her part also. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's fun to have her around for such a long time that you can really see things happening. You can see... Wheels turning. Well, now she's and uh, synapses, you know, joining together or whatever they do. Now she's she's fluent. She's she speaks beautifully. <laughs> After just a few weeks with us, she, she's weeks ready to be a guest. She's going to be a regular on Tams and Dan, Tams and Dan and Pepper. Right. Uh, yeah. Yes, she's become and there quite, was quite a, the sophisticated. There was a decent amount of uh, cousin interaction. Yes. Um, some squabbling, you know, mine, mine, mine. But also there was, you know, some kissing and hugging and, you know, some really charming moments. None of which were captured on camera. Well, of course. Of course. Well, it's, but, it's, uh, it'd always be whatever was happening, then something nice would happen and you would say, who's got the camera? And everybody would say, you know, it never occurred to me to have a camera. Why would you have a camera in a moment like this or my phone or anything like it? So you missed that. You have to take our word for it. Um, but you know, it's just, to me, it's more interesting seeing the way they look at each other just a little bit warily and, uh, then they kind of smile. They're okay. Well, do you feel that Hazi is in awe of his older cousin? No. No, I don't think Hazi, uh, is is fully taking the measure of any other living organism. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, you know, it's just something there that moves a little bit, but, uh, I don't know. I don't think he's in awe, but he, he had his eye on her. And he certainly picked up some things from watching her right. uh, do things. Yeah. And he he certainly, uh, you know, aspired to pick up his uh, speed afoot after watching uh, Pepper sort of fly around the room. And yeah. uh, that's fine. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, uh, uh, the age difference between them, the several month age difference between them is meaningful at this point. So. Uh, well, it's more than several months. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So anyway, so uh, we are, you know, slowly getting our strength back. Right, right. That's fair. Well, but it is funny to uh, just walk around completely upright, not yeah. holding anybody's hand. Yeah. Yeah. You know. So, so there, there, there was an article in the Times 
about uh, it's called Gear Dad, and I guess we were mentioning this. Uh, maybe Zeke saw it, um, and uh, written by a, a dad, uh, well, a Times reporter saying his new dad, and he was how he regards all this baby gear, and he you know included for color some of the the cutesy wootsy names that go with the baby gear and how they're highly specialized. They all seem a little silly. But the theme of this article was that um, he was won over to a large extent. Uh, he sort of embraced the baby gear thing, even though he was initially uh, skeptical, even to the point of voicing the uh, thought at the beginning of the article that, gee, for hundreds of years, not more people got by without any of this baby gear. I didn't get it. Every generation goes through this. Yes. And then so yeah. why do you need all this nonsense now? Well, he got over that pretty quickly. Matter of fact, he got over it before the child was born. So I'd say that's pretty quickly. Yeah. That, I didn't understand that at all. Yeah. It wasn't much of an article. It's one thing if you actually get the stuff and try it out. Yeah. It's another thing if you just change your mind. Yeah, the only thing you got out of the article, frankly, was the idea that baby gear is good if someone gives it to you and you don't have to buy it. Right. If uh, it's free. <laughs> yeah. If it's handed he down. He seemed to think that was a category. That was going to be used. <laughs> to be honest, yeah. some of the best baby gear that's turned up in our family yeah. has been hand-me-downs. Sure. The, the Granger and Nico got, you know, random stuff from neighbors. Yeah. And some of it turned out to be just uh, invaluable. Yeah. You know, and uh, you wouldn't have even thought well, look, necessarily some, to buy it. And also some of the stuff, that, and we've gotten seen this too, some of the least, some of the stuff that's very inexpensive, little toys, little shovels, little bright plastic things, uh, which might seem superfluous, but certainly aren't expensive, uh, are a lot of fun. A lot of fun for the kids. Well, that's not gear, Daniel. In the article, it was gear. That was, a, that was really? the third category. Really? Toys gear. were gear? Yeah. But, uh, but you know, the, the one gear that, uh, one of the gears we were, I was won over to yeah. is the so-called learning tower. Yes, that's true. And um, this is a, a structure that you, you know, the kid can climb up on. Right. It's, and, a, it's a wooden thing that goes right next to the counter, and the counter would be too high for the kid. But uh, it's structured in such a way that even a one- or two-year-old can climb up there pretty readily. Now they're standing, yet protected, and they're eye level on the counter. They're part of the action. The kitchen counter yeah. or wherever. Thanks. And, uh, you know, the thing was, uh, it was really funny because I never heard of such a thing and I never saw such a thing. I don't, you know, I don't frequent any sites yeah. that have all these things. Uh, so I'm pretty oblivious. But uh, near the end of Pepper's visit last holiday season, November, mm. December, right. somebody mentioned it. You know, they've been wanting, thinking about getting the learning tower. And meanwhile, for two months, we had been holding Pepper up yeah. in the kitchen while, uh, you know, while teaching her to make instant pudding right. or showing her what's going on at the counter. And I'm like, what? What? There's something we could buy that she could just stand there yeah. and nobody would have to hold her? So you better believe I ran out and bought one. Well, it was great for both of them. And they really, they really feel uh, they're in it. They're in the game. You yeah, know? and I got one that's folding. Yeah, and it turns out it, it, I actually accidentally ordered it from the Ukraine, and it came, and and it got here. Right. Um. So uh, you know, so I'm one over to that extent, but uh, the idea that there's all kinds of crazy stuff that costs well over a thousand dollars. Right. So it just you know. 
Well, the, the other piece of gear we picked up it was the, uh, the seat on the bicycle. But I'm a big believer in that, too. So I, I think that's, that's well worth it. But, you know, back in the day, we our first kid's bicycle seat was a hand-me-down from our neighbors right. but is it, in uh, the apartment in Central Park West. But, but it's the same idea. It's the same and, design. Uh, and it was primitive. Yeah. Well, this one is much more jazzola. That's for sure. But uh, you know, I feel I feel much more comfortable with my grandchildren riding in it. Yeah. Well, listen, the, the grandchildren you got to be careful with. The kids, not so much. The, the uh, you know the kids bounced along and uh, they managed, but uh, the grandchildren you can't be too careful, right? I just remember driving around uh, Block Island and. Uh, one of the bolts had come out of oh, the you were biking thing that, around Block Island. Yeah. yeah, yeah, biking around Block Island with Granger tilting, sitting yeah. at a complete that, that, tilt. Yeah, that was a, because his bike seat had come well, apart. That was, a, that was on my bike, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And he we were like, the, "Well, he has a helmet on." Yes, that's right. He's listening oh to the God. left. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to believe we were quite that. But other than that, I'm uh, I'm skeptical of the baby gear. But uh, in any event, I, I think but, it's a case by case basis. Well, you want to be sort of. Minimalist. I, I think the best uh, idea is handing it down. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Hey, that's the problem. You can fill up your house with that stuff passing pretty fast. Th- passing things around. Right. If you're going to have a bunch of children, uh, cool. You know, you'll get some use out of it. you got to get it down to like 35 cents a use. But there are an awful lot of things that uh, the manufacturers say don't, uh, the safety people say don't you get a used one. Oh, really? Yeah. What's that? Well, like car seats. And, oh, really? Don't yeah, get a used car seat? Right. You're kidding me. That would because be the it, first on yeah, my list. Yeah. Well, I mean, oh, come on. Well, what if it's been in an accident and it's oh, no longer no, that's silly. safe? I don't know. Yeah. Um, I, well, I wouldn't worry about that. So anyway, we did. Uh, we had a great time. Yeah, we did have a great time. But we're getting back into the swing of things. And what we saw was that uh, Pete Carrillo passed away. So uh, Pete Carrillo was the basketball coach at Princeton when we were there and uh, and for years uh, uh, after that. Um, and uh, there was a highly successful basketball program at Princeton um, even before Kirill got there and it became uh, even uh, more successful after Kirill became the coach. Uh, and he achieved a certain level of fame. Uh, what he would do is he would manage to... Uh, Win the Ivy title, you know, most often, generally speaking, beating Princess Nemesis Penn. Uh, and that was always a big rivalry, but he managed to beat Penn uh, the majority of times. Get to the NCAA tournament uh, because you had an automatic bid if you won the Ivy League. And now they were playing what, what you might consider, you know, more talented basketball teams with more highly recruited players who generally would be expected to walk over a team like Princeton. And uh, there, and generally that is what happened. But uh, there were a couple of games that were memorable that Princeton put up quite a good fight against very highly seeded teams. And famously, uh, one year they beat UCLA in the first round, uh, just a year after UCLA had actually won the entire tournament. And, and they won it on a, a, a famous backdoor pass. And I remember watching that game. That was several years after we were there. Um, but that was the last game that, Prince, that Pete Carrillo coached at Princeton, and then he he retired. And he said uh, he he put a big uh, he wrote on the blackboard for his team. He said, "I'm retiring. I'm very happy." Uh, and <laughs> he, that was he that. was he was a pretty iconic figure. He was he was, in, he was a well known figure. I mean, you, you knew who Pete Carrillo 
was. Right. Right. This short guy with with the white hair and the cigar off and the cigar. Yeah. And uh, you know, I'm not even sure he quite looked like. uh, Didn't look like a basketball basketball coach. coach. Didn't look like a basketball player. Though turned out he was quite a successful basketball player. Something I didn't know. he, uh, but there was an interesting article by Billy Witz uh, about on college basketball. I don't know if Billy Witz is a fellow who played for Princeton or not, but he spoke to a bunch of guys who played for Princeton, and it gave a different take on Pete Carrell. It wasn't, you know, the, the funny, uh, cozy, Santa Claus-like looking figure uh, who had all his wisdom and managed to have Princeton outsmart all these teams. It turns out that wasn't it. Uh, what Pete Carrell did was he would announce to the players on the first day, he said, look, I know you guys have... Uh, demanding course schedule and your Ivy Leaguers and all that, and you're here with academic reasons and you happen to play basketball. But as long as you're on this team, when you walk in this court, you're basketball players. That's all you are. You are basketball players. And he would um, conduct extremely long practices. As a matter of fact, so long that the rules that exist now wouldn't allow him to practice that long. Mm-hmm. And four-hour practices, mm-hmm. which is crazy, which is mm-hmm. highly demanding. Yeah. I mean, we were both on teams, uh, and uh, that's a long time. Uh, and he was apparently uh, a difficult guy to work with, uh, and a lot of the players didn't like him. Uh, really? Yes, and that's what this. He looks was... likable. Now, yeah, he might look likable, but he said that team that won the the uh, the game that uh, I talked about a moment ago at UCLA only had two seniors on the team, uh, and he talks to one of the seniors here, and he says the, the other seniors all quit because they couldn't stand the guy. And uh, this guy who he's talking to, uh, Chris Doyle, who was the only senior on the team, I guess only one senior on the team, said he couldn't stand him either, but he happened to stay on the team. He said he was highly critical. He would, uh, you know, rant and rave the players all the time. Uh, famously, Gabe Luellis, I don't know if you remember, he's the guy who made the backdoor cut and layup that won the game against UCLA. And it's asking a lot to remember. I happen to remember the play. Maybe you don't, but in any event... Maybe I don't. Um, so Gabe Wellis, who's, who's the hero of that game, it was asked about Pete Carrillo. He said, you know, there was a time in uh, a few weeks before that that he, like, uh, he spit a whole bunch of uh, phlegm, like, right in front of me on the floor of the, of the court. And he said, you see that? You know what that is? Loyal said, yeah. He was studying to be a doctor. He said, it's phlegm. He's on the ball. He's an orthopedic surgeon now, of course. And uh, Krill said, yeah, it's phlegm. That's what you're like. You're like phlegm. So you don't want you to look phlegm because you move, but you don't go anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Uh, So uh, this idea that he's this cute, cuddly curmudgeon, uh, not the case, which doesn't surprise me. Which doesn't surprise me. Mm -hmm. So um, he was very demanding, but he he wrung out of the players what he possibly could. And now, of course, everybody says uh, Krill's way is the, the right way. Maybe it was. Maybe it wasn't. But in any event, they certainly had well, a lot of Well, he did the whole defense with... What, what? I don't know. I don't know what you're saying. I, I don't know what I'm saying either, but uh, <laughs> you, we're always watching games and they say they're doing the Princeton... Princeton offense, yeah. Offense. I could, okay. You want me to talk Off, about it's that? Defense, offense and defense. I can talk know, about just, that. It, right. But I, I'll do it in one sentence, okay? Right. Well, it's moving without the ball. And that's what he's talking to Gabe Ellis about. He's saying you're cutting, but you're cutting without any conviction. And the play that he, cutting means running back and forth. And the play that they won the game, used to lay out, was cutting with conviction. He mm-hmm. faked a cut to the basket. Cut means just run toward the basket from the yeah. corner. It didn't have the ball. He stopped, uh, and he saw that he was covered. Ran back to where he was, and then stopped on a dime and sprinted toward the basket, got the pass, and put it in. That's cutting with conviction. That won the game. Okay. 
That, there it is. In one well, scene. I thought it was interesting. He was from Bethlehem. Yeah, and his, his father was a steel worker, and he and, was born Pedro Jose. Yeah, you know he, he he's a blue collar guy. He was a blue collar blue collar guy. guy at a at, at a uh, white shoe school. But uh, there you go. All right. Um, speaking of colors like blue, yeah. Uh, new exhibition at the Met. Yeah. Um, it's uh, called Chroma. And uh, it's going to be at the Met till March, so you have some time. And uh, you know, thank God. And it's uh, a favorite of yours, Greek sculpture. Mm. And what's interesting about it? It's Greek sculpture in color, in color. Because they color. So colorized Greek sculpture. But why would they do that? Because that's how it originally was. Is that right? It was painted. Oh, my God. Okay. So this um, is largely the work of uh, the Brinkmans, Vincennes and Ulrika, uh, who've been working on this since they were graduate students in the 1980s mm-hmm. uh, in Munich. And um, it turns out there were traces of paint mm-hmm. on these. We look at these sculptures. We think they are pristine white. You look at the Greek temples the buildings they seem to be pristine white and that's why we love them they glow they're fabulous and uh you know even in the like the 1890s 1892 edwin robinson who uh was one of the head early heads of the met wrote a paper about he he was at a um dig on the acropolis and they're bringing up sculptures and you can see the paint you can see the traces of the paint and now with computers and all kinds of uh you know microscopic Mm -hmm. photography uh you can really sort of uh itemize you know the uh these teeny fragments of paint and that's what the brinkmans do they take like 500 pictures and measures of these objects and try to guess uh, you know, give a uh, educated guess mm-hmm. as to what the colors were uh, on these sculptures, and it's really fun. And it's, so they've been they've had um, an exhibition, a traveling exhibition called Gods in Color, that's been traveling all over Harvard, um, Vatican, uh, you know, all over the world, uh, showing their. Uh, recreations mm-hmm. next to um, pristine white sculptures and uh, it's really quite amazing something you know there's a, a wonderful sphinx that has you know gilding on it and uh, you know blues on the on the wings, brown in the hair. But, but, but I don't understand. Are they taking these sculptures and painting on them, or are they? No, or are they, doing they are like um, creating images. making three D reproductions. I see. Okay. Um, in some cases, using three D printing, mm-hmm. you know, processes or whatever. What's interesting? One of the interesting things is um, they do it in uh, what you might call synthetic marble, mm-hmm. not real marble. Uh, and uh, the reason that is because they they did some initial trials mm-hmm. and people felt the the real marble looked fake, looked mm-hmm. like styrofoam, mm-hmm. looked less real than the synthetic marble. Mm-hmm. So their recreations are in the synthetic, and they look, uh, you know, you tell me they look garish, don't they? 
they, you know, they look entirely different from mm-hmm. the way you've ever thought about Greek sculpture. Um, and uh, so that's funny. That's interesting. When I was teaching um, art history and I would show these kind of pictures, I mean, pictures of the um, Brinkman's um, projects have been floating around mm-hmm. uh, since the early 2000s. And. Um, and I would show them to the students. They'd say, no, oh, those are horrible. We don't want to see that. Mm. Um, but uh, it really gives you pause. Now, we don't know that they're exactly correct, right? Because they're just approximating. Mm. And as, as we get more and more information and data, their approximations, I, get, I guess, will get more sophisticated and closer to the truth. But we'll never be able to uh, really understand exactly how these things looked originally. There's a famous sculpture of bronze. They're even they're also doing the bronze sculptures. Um, and uh, there's a famous bronze sculpture, Hellenistic bronze sculpture that I always love called the Boxer. And uh, he's not uh, youthful and ideal like a lot of Greek sculptures. He's tired, he's old, he's beat up, he's bleeding. And some of his scars and uh, blood... We're actually well, familiar um, with the sculpture. What you are, yeah. so the, the, you know that they had uh, it was bronze, but had copper inlay mm-hmm. uh, to represent like the blood, mm-hmm. etc. And uh, you know the the way they have kind of recreated that sculpture is kind of especially mm-hmm. uh, garish, I would say. So it, it's interesting. It's a shock to the system because we think we know. We pride ourselves on being, you know, being quite familiar with classical sculpture and everything that it means. And of course, uh, it's been kind of a, some people feel, a banner waved by white supremacists, uh, glorifying white uh, in terms of really? ideals. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's big controversy about this. A lot of talk about this. And, and even the Victorians, it was not so much about supremacy. Well, maybe it was. I don't know. Um, but the Victorians... Uh, loved the idea that the sculptures were white mm-hmm. and kind of blank and didn't have pubic hair depicted well, that's uh, because a, that's then it was easier to yeah. look at. You could look at these right. nude sculptures right. and they clearly weren't people. Mm-hmm. They were sculptures. They were objects. And you right. could look at them without being embarrassed mm-hmm. or feel you right. you know, were standing there with lust in your heart or whatever. But in these, uh, when you see these um, sort of flesh-painted, colored um, reliefs, etc., you know, they have a totally different effect. So that, so it'll be interesting to see and, um, and shocking to the system. And I think the way it's set up, it is the new color versions, uh, reproductions are, you know, juxtapose mm-hmm. with the the sculptures we've been you know looking at for years so that's at the met chroma okay. go see it's a shock to the system the the um head of the met max holine mm-hmm. uh said i mean he guesses that around 80 percent of people have no idea that greek sculpture was ever painted and so this will Blow everybody's mind. Yeah, well, I didn't know, and, uh, and yet I wouldn't say my mind's blown, but it, uh, you know, didn't know. Interesting. Um, okay, so there's an article on about the Mets broadcast. Come for the broadcast, stay for the game. 
And they quote Jerry Seinfeld as saying about a Met broadcast, it's not a sports event, it's a TV show. Uh, and the Mets are uh, famous for, uh, not famous, but it's well known that they have a highly uh, interesting uh, broadcast crew. Keith Hernandez, Ron Darling, Gary Cohen, they've been much praised. But uh, what this article emphasizes is that the guys in the booth, the guys who generate the pictures or at least have the cameramen out there and show what images right, or choose what images will be shown and what angles and the like uh, are really doing uh, fascinating work and it's making the game much more uh, suspenseful and engaging and all that. Um, Is and Ron it, Darling still on it? Yeah, yeah. They don't work every game. They don't. I never seem to hear him. I only hear Hernandez. Uh, no, no. And Hernandez missed a bunch of games too. They, none of them, neither of them want to travel as much as required to be at every game. It's 81 road games. So mm-hmm. nobody needs that. Uh, so they probably split it and you just have caught the last few. Darling did yesterday's game. Um, but in any event, um, the idea... You Darling know, did yesterday's game. Yeah, but we didn't get it. But we we're, were watching the Philly because we, Because I don't know no, who's going to care about this because okay. we're in the Philly region. Uh, it, it's a rights thing. It's just us. In New York, they heard Darling. I'm just excusing myself for okay. not noticing it was Darling. <laughs> that's okay? true. Oh, but, but that's I a good didn't point. Hear so we watched the Philly broadcast yesterday. We get Philly broadcasts, and when it's. Well, we had to. We had to. You can only get the Philly broadcast because it's local. Yeah. So uh, here, here's a big secret uh, I'm going to tell you. It doesn't make any difference what kind of camera angles they use. This it, is silliness. Okay? It's a ball game. You're into the ball game, you're not into the ball game. And the fact is that the Phillies, I'm sure, use the most rudimentary camera angles going. Uh, it, <laughs> it was fine. It was indistinguishable. It was the same thing. The truth yeah, is... Yeah, you always turn to the the SNY broadcast. Yeah, well, I, I turn because I like to hear Gary, and I, and I like to hear uh, Keith, and I like to hear Ron. But the camera angles, what's what this about, they're making it more exciting. It's exciting enough. If you're into baseball, you're into baseball. You got to trust the product. It's you, fun. You're such a cranky old man. I am a purist. Listen, about if it. I wanted suspense, frankly, I'd listen. you would listen to, to it on the radio. That's exactly right. How did you know that? <laughs> if I wanted suspense, I'd listen to it on the radio because it's great suspense. Because there's that pause between Seinfeld. the crack of the bat and uh, where'd the ball go? What's going on? You know, and you're sitting there yelling at the at the broadcast. The pitch was a foot you outside. Are, How could they call that a strike? And he you realized you're listening to it on the radio. But uh, yes, it's much more suspenseful on the radio. It's a mind game. This is, this article is trying to generate some interest. They're trying to generate interest among people who aren't interested in baseball. They're saying it's because like those are the only game. people left who can watch it. Okay, <laughs> that right? may be. That may be. That you may know, be. they they got to get more interest, or they're not. There's yeah, not going to be. They're saying, I'm setting this shot up like Quentin Tarantino, and here's the guy walking to the mound. Here's the music they play when they walk to the mound. So who cares? Who cares? You know, he's going to strike the guy out, or he's not. So you're right. I just I just talked about so I right. to be cranky. All right. It's another chance for me to be cranky, uh, and uh, I don't want to lose out, miss out on those chances. There's just so many left, you know. All right, okay. go, go on to your next thing. Well, tomorrow is my day to pick up at the CSA. Yes, CSA. Community Supported Agriculture. Right. So we we pay a, a flat amount and mm-hmm. we belong to a farm. And, uh, you know, for 15 or 
so many weeks, right. we get produce. We get an assigned allotment mm-hmm. of the produce that happens at the farm. And we belong to a CSA in New Jersey for like 500 years, not five, you know, over 20 years, 25 <laughs> Seriously. Something between 20 and 500, yes. Yes. A long and, time. Um, it was and, fine. and it was fine. It was it, good. Yeah. It's a good way to get uh, um, good, fresh produce. Yeah. Um, and uh, because food deteriorates, produce deteriorates the soon, longer it's uh, on the road. As soon as it's picked, so, it's so deteriorating. Right. So yeah. you get it at the grocery store, you've got something that's uh, already old. And you, you don't necessarily have a um, farm stand near enough uh, to get a good variety of stuff, right? A Mm -hmm. real farm stand, because some of the farm stands are buying stuff from the same place the grocery store is buying them. Um, They're not actual farms. So we have belonged to a CSA, so we can get uh, all the good bounty uh, directly from the farm. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there's an article in the New York Times yesterday about some farms are expanding beyond produce to offer cultural and social experiences. Really? And the headline is Turning Barns into Meeting Places. Well, most of the article is about uh, CSAs or farms uh, and or farms that are out uh, like in the Hamptons. Oh, God. And uh, they have gatherings, they have dinners, they have events, you know, flower arranging or whatever. Um, that uh, may cost like uh, $120 uh, for the event, mm-hmm. and you go and you uh, hang out. Um, they, they describe a CSA, I guess Early Girl Farm in Brookhaven, all right, where people make a point of putting on their makeup before they go pick up their oh, vegetables. Really? <clears throat> yeah, because you don't know who you're going to turn run into um you know there's all these uh celebrities out there and it's it's a social thing really? picking up your bed i've been to our csa I, I don't see it that way well um i now belong to the tinicum csa right. which right. is uh about 25 minutes north of here right. and i love it mm-hmm. and for me it is a social experience oh really okay not that i really have made friends there or do anything in particular there, but going there is fun. And just even in the background, hearing people's conversations about what they're going to do with this vegetable or that vegetable, and just, uh, you know, arguing with whoever they're with about whether they should, you know, choose the beets or the carrots, and, uh, you know, and the people bring their little children and get them involved in helping to carry stuff and so on. It, it's, uh, you know, it's a kind of social interaction, even though it's not some group dinner or whatever. In fact, they had an event this week that was an onion cleaning event. They had to um, clear out their storage facilities for the next batch of things coming in. They had to, you know, you, you take the outer shells, out of outer flaking skins off yeah. the um, onions and some of the dirt and so forth. So they were inviting people to come help out with that. I didn't get to go because I was kind of busy with grandchildren. But uh, the other thing that happens is there's pick your own. Yeah. So you go to the CSA and you're allotted a pint of raspberries, right. but you have to go out in the field and pick them. Or flowers, uh, we're allotted 30 stems of flowers. You go out into the field and pick them and you're out there with other people mm-hmm. and picking and chatting about 
whereas uh, which um, row still has a lot of good stuff in, you know, right. tips about that or where to find the scissors, where do they put the scissors so you can cut the flowers, uh, things like that. So I will say that it's not just, I do get um, great produce from my CSA, but it's a fun event right, to good. go there and pick it up. And it's not a huge chore. It's not a huge farm. So it's not like I have to hike uh, across three acres uh, to get the cherry tomatoes or anything like that. So it just it kind of amuses me, of course, that in the Hamptons it becomes a whole different uh, funny thing that seems to cost extra. But in our little CSA, uh, it is it is social and it's good. It's I no mean, good it can be hot out there. I mean, if you're out there, uh, not first thing, you know. You're out yeah, there. yeah. I mean, it's just it, it's. You know, it's it's got its whole true farming aspects. Not perfect. I'm just worried about the makeup. I mean, you know, it seems to me that uh, that kind of heat. I don't know. But, uh, all right, good. You know, my limited exposure to the CSA, no one chatted me up. That's just me. Well, um, as I'm saying, it's not that I'm having long conversations. I may just be overhearing conversations where I may just be saying here you can use my scissors but it is there is a social component all right good so uh I I feel like we're not allowed to do this but I'm going to do it anyway there's another article on the bear this is the 400th article on the bear the tv show which is described in the article as a master class of acting writing and directing as a dramatically accurate rendering of kitchen life uh, it's by Jason Gay. What makes it interesting, because we've talked about this before. And it's the title of the article. The Bear is, according to Jason Gay, the best sports show on television. Now, that's would seem a stretch, uh, and I guess it is a stretch. But here's what Gay is saying. He says, the Bear lands like a sports show because it's a tribute to teamwork, not the kind that happens on a field but in a narrow kitchen. And he goes on to explain that you have the kind of personalities you often have on sports teams or more to the point in sports movies. And uh, and what the show really does is really chronicle how these different personalities who have these very different roles end up meshing together. Um, which I think there is something to it, actually. I mean, the way Jason Gaines sums it up is this. Uh, The heart of the bear uh, is the very human desire to be part of something bigger than oneself and the small victories and defeats that happen along the way. Take it from a sports writer. That's also sports. Yeah, well, he also identifies uh, characters that are are typical on a sports team, the grizzled the, the veteran. veteran. Yeah. He said, the, the, yeah, right, the enigmatic superstar is the whiz chef Carmi. The no-nonsense phenom is the sous chef Sydney. The gifted role player, the baker Marcus. The skeptical old hand, do it all Tina. And the threatened veteran, right. he's Richie. Right. Well, it was funny because uh, last week I was going through some old photographs. Yeah. And I uh, found a picture of... Uh, uh, the kitchen in the cranberry food sampler, the yeah. business that I owned, right. and uh, it looked very much like a shot from uh, from, the bear. from the bear. I mean, there were uh, three employees crammed back there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, a woman, um, 
uh, Joe Ortiz uh, and, uh, you know, like a kind of a heavyset um, guy as well. You know, a variety of characters jammed into this small space mm-hmm. working on stuff. With little stations separated it, yeah, by yeah. these and sort of, you know, yeah. little, um, I don't know, what do you call that? There's this sort of uh, different countertops, but they're not really countertops. It's made of some kind of iron mesh or something like that. But in any event, you you, can, you see people. Yeah, the metro looked, shelving. Yeah, but, the metro you know, shelving. We, yeah, it, it looked exactly but, the same. Matter of fact, the picture yeah, in the paper is yeah, is yeah. there in a box? Yeah, you had those those. Boxes. Yeah, we had what some conversations called? inside. The, every once in a while, you do chat in the walk-in. The because walk-in. Yeah, they're in a walk-in you, here. Right, because number one, it's hot in the kitchen. Yeah. Number two, you have some privacy. Right. So then the picture here, and you said it's a great picture, is two of the main characters sort of facing off in the walk-in, with another guy sort of warily peering in as he looks. Saying, "Okay, door. see you later." <laughs> I'll be back. The door. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So we apologize for uh, talking about the the bear every single week. But they keep but, writing about it. It's, yeah, it's, it's not it's, our fault. It's crazy. Yeah. So in any event, finally, uh, I didn't even get a chance to show you. There's something in the paper today, which actually uh, being taught about U.S. history in the Times, and they have uh, sort of one of these. Interviews with a group of people, sorts of individual teachers in this case, and uh, what's going on in their classrooms in particular, you know, given the challenges that certain teachers are facing about how they're handling uh, sensitive issues about race, critical race theory and the like, and whether the accusations that they're indoctrinating students, and without getting into that debate, the, to me, the, the thing that stood out was this, this one quote from a teacher in Florida named Mike Klapka about indoctrination where he says, if I could indoctrinate my students, it would be, quote, bring me coffee and stay off your phones. And he said, I can't get them to do that. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. It's, it's, not, it's uh, not too easy to indoctrinate students. No. Yeah. All right. So that's all we have. And we're going to continue to try to recuperate from uh, the weeks. Well, actually, we're going to be uh, out and about. Um, we've been starved for entertainment. We're going to see some Sondheim. Yeah, well, we're going up to Massachusetts. Uh, as much but, time yeah. as we can see in the next couple of weeks right. and uh, maybe some other stuff as well. And uh, we'll, we will report back this time about culture. Culture. Not necessarily children. Not necessarily children, yes. Uh, okay, so until next week, this is... Uh, Tamsin Granger. And Dan Ampuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan read the paper. See ya. See ya.